Well, about every 10 years, I give a sermon on tithing, so this is your lucky day. <laughs> Literally, the last time I looked at my records was 2012, and uh, the session has asked me to talk about this, and uh, like anything else, I'm, I mean, I, I was tempted to, to kind of, uh, you know, parade before you all the things as a church that we do, so you would feel that you're sacrificial giving is, is well spent, and, um, and there's a lot. I mean, we could, if I wanted to go that route, I think there's a lot of things where you'd say, wow, this is, this is a good use of my finances. But like other things, I think our giving should be principled. Um, we don't want to be manipulative. We don't want to put people under some type of ungodly pressure. There is, according to the scripture as I read it, a way we all can give equally. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, that we would give the way that God has called us to give. And as kind of a springboard into that topic, we're looking at uh, Malachi 3.10. Really, that whole chapter talks about tithing, but I'm just using one here to kind of get rolling. Malachi 3.10, hear now the word of God. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, recognizing there is an economic aspect to the ministry. We pray that we would have it in its proper place that it would not be too important at the same time, not too unimportant. And then it would be governed, Father, by your call and not our own impulse, because we know where human impulse can lead. So help us to be a wise people. Help us also as a church, as elders and deacons and trustees and those who are called to properly handle what amounts to be, Father, and very uniquely um, that which belongs to you, to handle that properly to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you no doubt know, putting God to the test can be pretty tricky business. Generally speaking, you don't want to do it. Right? When the, the devil tried to get Jesus to jump off a cliff for no reason at all, Jesus said, no, we don't put God to that kind of test. In the wilderness, when they were grumbling, they were putting God to the test. These are negative ways of putting God to the test. Any kind of test that is capricious, it's driven by doubt or selfishness, as I would argue many televangelists, many in the word faith movement, are governed by a greed of money. Working at a retirement home for many years, they would target the elderly, these Mostly widows would come to me with an envelope they got from some TV evangelist promising them wealth and health if they just sent them a certain amount of money. I mean, I have to say, I think the hottest places in hell are reserved for people who are charlatans along those lines. I think if we are testing God by virtue of some kind of presumption on our part, it's, that's a dangerous business. Matter of fact, I think it's dangerous in our relationships with one another. I think there's a place for testing relationships, but I feel like if we go through life where we're constantly having that unhealthy testing of each other, that's as, as well something we don't want to do. 
But there's also a good testing. We see it in the Bible. Test all things. Hold to what is true. You are, you are called to test me. I'm going to be in a sermon. You're called to test whether I say is biblical or not. There's a good testing we see. But very seldom do we see that testing where we're called to test God. This passage I just read is one of those rare passages where God is saying, test me. It's as if God knows that tithing is a challenging call. We we often feel that tithing is beyond our boundaries. We feel like, no, no, you don't understand. If I tithe, I'm not going to make it. I mean, it's hard, you know, I mean, I don't want to be critical, but we, we, we basically, us in this room, are among the richest people in human history. And yet, we've kind of organized our lives in such a way that if we tithe, we're not going to make it. Not sure if God's buying it. But here he's saying, look it, you, you need to test me on this, which I think amounts to you need to trust me on this. Now, there are benefits to tithing. Now, again, don't think of TV evangelists. Don't think of God as some kind of cosmic vending machine that if you're going to get, if you give a certain percentage, and I've heard one you know, guy on TV say, there's, there's the tenfold blessing and the hundredfold blessing, and the more money you give, you get the hundredfold blessing. You know, it just doesn't work that way. But in a very axiomatic way, we should expect that if there's faithful giving in the church, that's going to kind of reveal something good. Good things are going to happen. Now, economics may not be at the top of our spiritual priorities, but the Bible does have something to say about it, quite a bit, actually. And we should seek to be a wise, biblical congregation when it comes to the disposition, not just in tithing, but our finances in, in general. I, I have to say, a great deal of our spiritual makeup when we kind of evaluate ourselves, and I do this also, is relegated to the world of mist and ambiguity. You know, we're like, I'm really, God knows my heart, and I'm way better than you think on things that you can't measure. But see, the tithe is in that way, right? You know what the tithe is? It's math. It's objective. You can take a look at it and actually objectively evaluate obedience or disobedience. A lot of us don't like that. We don't like the fact that there's a clear measurement of whether or not I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. We like things to remain undefined. Well, what we're going to find here, that as a nation, we don't tithe. When it comes to the obedience in our country, and I, I, I'll tell you, I don't, know, I don't know who gives what in this church. I don't know how much money you make. I don't know how much you give. I've intentionally moved away from that because I don't want to be tempted, you know, to tiptoe through the tithers. You know, I, you know, I have to have this disposition that no matter who you are, it's the same message. Right? But I do know this. I know, what the, I know how we function as a nation. Now, every Sunday, tithing you know, tithes and offerings are part of worship. 
it's part of our liturgy. And I think because it is part of our liturgy, we should have not only the right disposition, but the right amount in that liturgy. I think the Bible calls it to be part of, of worship. We read in Deuteronomy 12.6, There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. It's part of the worship time. Like I said, like any other portion of worship, we should engage it properly. Now, again, I don't know who gives what in this church, but I do know what's going on in our nation because those sets come out. And as a nation, we don't tithe. Now, I say it that way because the word tithe means tenth. And we don't really come anywhere close to that. Matter of fact, statistically as a nation, every year we hit a new low when it comes to what churches give. With all the talk about the new covenant being a superior covenant and the work of the Holy Spirit and the giving being greater than in the old, when it gets right down to it, in the new covenant, in America, our, our tithing, and it's not even tithing, our offering amounts to about 2.38% of people who go to church. So it's less than one quarter of what the Bible indicates should be the case. And the other stat that I found amazing was 5% of people who actually go to church tithe. Not 5% of the population. 5% of churchgoers actually tithe. Now, as I said, I don't know what's going on here, so I'm not looking at you. Well, I am looking at you, but... But if, but if it came to my attention that as a nation, we were clearly falling short... If it came to my attention that as a, as a nation, the, America's church doesn't love, America's church doesn't pray, America's church doesn't evangelize, America's church d- don't open their Bibles. If I understood that I lived in the context of a framework where all that was happening, I'd feel a responsibility to address those things, which, by the way, I have in the past, especially in the hot topics where you're going, going as a church... This is what we believe in terms of a nation. This is the direction we're taking. And so I do think that it's appropriate occasionally to have a message addressing the trends of our country in terms of the way Christians think, and tithing is one of those examples. Add to this, as I said earlier, the, the session the elders have asked me to preach on tithing because our trustees have reported to the session that we're well behind on our projections for this year. Now, I don't want this sermon at this point to become, you know, you know, uh, one of those things where you have all the telephones behind you and you're making a pledge. And I, I'm going to try to avoid going in that direction because I'm under the conviction that a church should give principally, right? You give on principle. And if, and if we are being a faithful church, and if we are doing what the Bible calls us to do, then our budget committee just needs to adjust the budget. It's fine. It's just the way it works. But what I want to make sure this morning is that we are, in fact, a faithful church, that we are, in fact, doing what the Bible calls us to do. And then... 
wherever we end up, we end up. People are moving, people are coming, people are going, and so we've got to make those responsible adjustments. Now, let me just explain something to you, because I really want you to appreciate this. I want you to appreciate what is hard for me to appreciate, and that is God, in his wisdom, puts on our elder board, puts on our deacon board, puts in our trustees, people who are much more economically minded than I am. Like, they are people who are going, these numbers need to work. And I'm in the back of the room going, well, let's just buy it. Like, if all the elders were me, we'd have been broke a long time ago. <laughs> and we kid about it, you know, because they, I know I need them, and I think they know they need me, and somewhere we meet in the middle, because that's the way, you know, uh, the, you know the, an elder board should work, or deacons should work. But they really work hard at making sure that things are done responsibly because they know that it's hard-earned money that you have given. They also know that it is money given for the kingdom of God, and they want to make sure that it's used properly. And so when you go to a meeting and you see all the pens out and you see all the budget sheets and all this stuff... These aren't guys who are just businessmen bringing the business world into the church. They are people who've read their Bible and they understand the responsibility that they have before God to be responsible with whatever economics and finances come into the church. And I, as I said, I'm terrible at that. And I am very thankful that God has brought people into our church who make sure that takes place. But the major question before us this morning is, what is the standard? if there even is one, by which faithful giving is to be determined. How do you know that you are actually being faithful in your giving? Has God determined with any specificity what he requires for the functioning of his church? And here's how I'm going to approach it for the next few minutes. Number one, I'm going to argue that God has determined that a tithe, a tenth, is the appropriate amount for running of a church. And by a church, I'm talking about the local church. Secondly, that the, the tithe is primarily for staff. I think that's a biblical argument that can be made. Third, an offering is different than a tithe. We say tithes and offerings. We're not being repetitious there. And fourth, if in fact what I'm saying is accurate and you're not there, how do you get there? All right, so let's get rolling. Tithing. Now, for various reasons, you're going to hear a great deal of pushback when it, when it comes to tithing. We, we, live in a, we live in a Christian era that is going, you got to get out of that church if they're preaching tithing. I actually heard a minister one time say, look at, he goes, whatever you give in the new covenant, don't, it can't be a tithe. Give 9%, give 11%, but don't give 10%, because the moment you give 10%, you're putting yourself under the law. Now, let me tell you, that is wrong on so many levels that I don't even have time to deal with it. There, it's, it's a lack of understanding of the continuity of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's also a lack of understanding of what it means to be under the law. If I got up here and said, you need to tithe in order to be saved, then I would be putting you under the law. This is a response to God's grace, not a way to acquire God's grace. But, uh, but I want to argue here, though, 
is the main reason we can see that is wrong is because tithing, and this is going to get a little seminary-ish, but bear with me, tithing was before the law. By the law, we're talking about the law given to Moses, Ten Commandments and the Attending Commandments. Tithing was before the law. Tithing is in the law, and I'm going to argue this morning that tithing is actually, if we can say it this way, after the law or in the era of the new covenant. So let me hit this, you know, and this is going to be like, again, a little bit of, a little seminary-ish, but I think it's important for you to understand. Long before the law was given to Moses, we see Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. I mean, this is way before Moses. Genesis 14, 20, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tenth of all. And I'm not going to get into this this morning because I took three sermons I had given years ago and I condensed it into one sermon where I spent a whole bunch of time in Hebrews chapter 7. But in Hebrews chapter 7, we are learning about Melchizedek and we are learning that the responsibility there is even stronger as we get into the new covenant because it's a better covenant it's a richer covenant and so forth. But the point I'm only making here now is, before the law even existed, we see a tithe. We see it also with Jacob in Genesis 28:22, And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So there we see a tenth or a tithe once again. So we see the tithe before the law was ever given to Moses. Tithing in the law. Now, that is so obvious, I'm not really going to spend a lot of time dealing with that. So, clearly it's before the Mosaic administration, the time of Moses, but it's clearly in the law. We read in Leviticus 27.30, thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. I just picked one verse, but you could look at... Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 14, Second uh, Chronicles 31, Nehemiah 10, and on and on and on. It's very clear that the tithe was part of the law given to Moses. But what about now? Right? Is, is that just a nice nostalgic history lesson? Now we're in the New Covenant. Has tithing, like animal sacrifice, become outdated and unnecessary? Has God introduced some new criteria for giving in the New Covenant Church. Now, before I just say no to those rhetorical questions, I think it's important for us to understand why we would say no to those questions. And during Q&A, I think it was last week, a young lady got up and asked a question about certain things in the Old Testament, dietary restrictions and this or that, and uh, because oftentimes Christians are accused of cherry-picking, right? They're like, oh, no, you're only picking laws in the Old Testament that comport with your own prejudices and so forth. Well, how do we read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament? That was the question this young lady asked, and I think it's a good question. How do, we, how, do we, how do we read our Bibles when we finish Malachi and begin reading in Matthew? I'll use this term, implied continuity. There's an implied continuity versus implied discontinuity. And here's what I mean by that. Only God can make a law. In the ultimate sense, only God can make a law. And once God makes that law, only God can repeal it. We can't just decide 
that law no longer applies. It must be very clear to us when we read the New Testament that God is saying that law no longer applies. Well, why would God do that? Does he just kind of change his mind? Does he change those laws like willy-nilly, you know, just for no reason whatsoever? No, because we have to understand this. When we read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the main gist of the Old Testament is that it's anticipatory of Christ, right? Jesus said that, right? The Old Testament is about me. So we read in the Old Testament about the Lamb. Larry talked about the Lamb of God. And then when John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, guess what you no longer do? And the lambs really appreciated it, I'm sure. You no longer sacrifice lambs. So the things in the Old Testament that pointed to Christ mainly ceremonial laws, the priesthood, all those types of things, those things that pointed to Christ are no longer necessary. Why? Because Christ has come. They were pedagogical. They were a tutor that led us to Christ. But when Christ is here, they have fulfilled their purpose. Now, I can't get too far into this, but you can see that also with dietary laws and fabric laws. Dietary laws and fabric laws separated Israel from the other nations. Right? If you dressed a certain way, if you ate a certain way, you revealed where you were from. People kind of, that still kind of happens today. You go to Italy, you know, you go to any nation in the world, you're going to get all sorts of different kinds of food, you know, right? And when, I don't know about you, but when I travel, eating is like at the top of my list. When you go to Italy, you know what kind of food they got in Italy? Italian food. You know why? Because they're like, it's the best food. Why would we have German food in Italy? I mean... I don't know what that has to do with anything. It just popped into my head, and I felt I had to say it. <laughs> but there is the sense where you're kind of going, the way you're eating and the way you're dressing, tell me where you're from. And in the Old Testament, that was very clear, right? It was clear with Daniel. It was clear with the fabrics. But the New Covenant is what? Is it Israel? No, the New Covenant is international. So the things that insulated Israel from the other nations are now no longer necessary because now it's every nation, kindred, and tongue. So that's the way you read the Old Testament or the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. There are certain things that no longer apply. And as you start reading your New Testament, you see that kind of coming into play. God going, don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore. Let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 7, they were kind of getting on Jesus because of the way his followers were eating. And Jesus said, are you so dull? Mark 7, 18. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but it into his stomach and then out of his body. And so that's Jesus speaking. And then, and then Mark gives kind of his little commentary here. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So the dietary restrictions that we saw in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying it's no longer the case. The purpose for those things no longer exists. We see that Peter had the very similar experience in Acts chapter 10 where God says, don't call unclean that which I've now called clean and so forth. So even though, even though the new covenant had not yet fully blossomed, and I would say the old covenant, you know, the old covenant was fading away, the new covenant was blossoming, and I would say it didn't fully blossom until after the ascension of Christ and the destruction of the temple. Even though that was happening, Jesus took the opportunity 
to teach the Christian faith with its new covenant features. Jesus would do that. Jesus would say, we're in a new covenant. So those food restrictions no longer apply. You understand, what I, you understand my point here? Okay, so let's go to the tithe on this. Because he doesn't do that with the tithe. He doesn't say, there's no commentary where it says, Jesus thus ended the tithe. Right? Matter of fact, he does just the opposite. In Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But now notice what he says. These, talking about the tithing of the mint and dill and so forth, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, he had a perfect opportunity to go, we're done with the tithing. But he doesn't say that. He goes, yeah, the big, there are some big things that you're neglecting. You need to do those without neglecting the others. The tithing. I think an even stronger argument is made by the Apostle Paul, where Paul uses the Old Covenant tithe as a model for New Covenant giving. I think it's really interesting how 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, which both talk about giving, talk about it in an entirely different way. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, we read this. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So notice in verse 14 where he says, in the same way. So you have to ask the question, I think, if you want to be a responsible student, in the same way as what? Well, the obvious answer is, in the same way as those who worked in the temple. And it is beyond debate that those who worked in the temple were subsidized, how? By a tithe. Now, so you understand, you understand the point here. Paul's going, in the, in the old covenant, they were subsidized by a tithe. We have a new covenant. This that whole chapter is don't muzzle the ox and so forth. In the new covenant, it's like going, that, that minister needs to be subsidized in the same manner as the way the priests of the Old Testament were subsidized. Now, before we, before we move on, you might have a lot of questions in your head. One of the questions that I received when I first taught on tithing was, well, wait a minute, wait one minute, Pastor Paul. Aren't there three tithes in the Old Testament? And there are. There's, you know, there's one tithe that's once a year. There was another tithe that was once a year. And then there was a third tithe that was every three years. So now we're talking 23 and a third percent. Now, here's the deal. Israel was both a church and a nation. Right? I mean, I, that gets a little tricky, right? But Israel was a church and a nation. And not to get into an entire lecture on the amount of money that a nation should require in order to function, but it seems that God is saying the nation of Israel is to, be, is to function on 23 and a third percent of the income of the people. And by the way, 10% of that goes right to the priesthood. 
So the nation should be running on about 13%. Which is what we as a nation run on, right? Yeah. You give them the keys, man. You give the government the keys. They're going to open it, take your money, throw it in, lock the door. You know, when, when Aaron was praying that our nation would govern itself biblically, this is kind of what we're talking about. That there is a... There is a biblical economics to the way governments should function. But going back to the question, I'll just put it this way, that the tithe we're talking about is the tithe that was determined to run the priesthood. It was the tithe that Abraham talked about. It was the tithe that Malachi talked about. It was the tithe that Jesus talked about. It was the tithe that Paul wrote about. It was the tithe that the author of Hebrew, that tithe, which was specifically given for the running of the ministerial aspect of Israel. So I think there's a very strong argument that the tithe is still that amount that God has determined for his church to run. But that brings me to the second point, and that is, where does this go? Now, it's a little tough for me, you know, I have to be honest with you, you know, to preach on this, because the, probably the lion's share of your giving goes to me, right? But, you, you know, I'm not on commission. If I make a good sale today, I don't get a raise, and it's a little easier for me, and I'm not, we'll talk about this in the congregational meeting, I'm not, I'm not retiring anytime soon, but, you know, I ain't no spring chicken, and so we got to start thinking about some new guy. It's a lot easier for me to talk about funding the next guy, right? And I, and I have been known for this, and I've had churches enlist me to come in, and I will talk to other churches and their elders about them taking care of their pastor. Because, you know, what's the old saying, Lord... You know, you keep, them, you keep them humble, we'll keep them hungry when it comes to the paying of the pastor. But if you read your Bibles, I think the primary place that that is to go is actually to ministerial staff. Now, there might be all sorts of other costs to ministry. The fact that we're in a room, you've got chairs, we've got to pay for the building, we've got to pay for the microphone. There's all sorts of things, but when it gets right down to it, the primary emphasis in Scripture is the funding of the minister. Now, in the context of funding the pastor, where Paul's talking about not muzzling the ox, he's writing to his, his protege, Timothy, Paul makes the argument that the labor, it's in that context that Paul writes that the laborer is worthy of his wages. We can also conclude that the laboring uh, of preaching and teaching, 1 Timothy 5.17, I'm going to argue is a full-time job demanding some level of excellence. As we saw, Paul compares those who preach the gospel with those who serve at the altar. He makes this comparison. Of those people who served at the altar, this was written in Malachi 2.7, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. J.A. Thompson on that passage wrote this. The freedom to study the law of the Lord was not a matter of academic leisure for the priests. Rather, it was crucial for the well-being of the whole nation that the clergy thoroughly understand what God requires. Similarly, any church today that does not afford its pastor the opportunity for study and growth will suffer for it. 
I recall being in a theological discussion with a fellow pastor when one of the members of his staff walked in, interrupted us, and chastised us for wasting our time talking about doctrine when there were more pressing matters for us to attend to. You guys are talking about doctrine again? I found, I have found, I don't know if you have, I have found this to be a very common contemporary disposition. All this talk about doctrine. All this talk about theology. All the study. You know, Eli just graduated. He's going off and going to pastor a church. He's got to hit the books. You're not done studying, right? You're just beginning, right? You hit those books. You got to get, you know what they used to call the pastor's office? You know what they called it? The study, right? You, and if you don't, if you don't support your pastor in the freedom to actually crack those books and be in that time of word and prayer, the church will suffer for it. And let me tell you, it has. When I listen to the biggest churches in America, I'll turn them on. I don't know why, just because I want to punish myself. And I'll turn them on, and they have a budget of $40 million. And the guy on the stage is just not exegeting the word of God. And then he'll say something like, you know, there are more important... He'll say the same thing. There are more important things and, and so forth. And I remember years ago when R.C. Sproul was still alive, I'm like, if I were that guy, because he's clearly pretty smart and he's articulate, and they've got a $40 million budget, I would hire R.C. Sproul for full-time to come and be my personal teacher and go, every sermon, go over every sermon with me before I give it. Like, make that a priority. But we don't live in a world where that kind of matters any longer, how contrary to Scripture. Paul, writing to Timothy, wrote this, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. You know, whatever the future holds for this church, don't allow yourself not to believe that. Whoever we end up with here down the road, you know, Make sure he's got a good library or, you know, an online library. Put it in the budget, you know. If he, if, he, if he doesn't go down deep in the well during the course of the week in the Word of God, you're going to feel it on Sunday morning. Right? I mean, I just tr- trust, don't trust me on that. I think it's biblical. You can trust me to the extent that it's accurate. This is why oftentimes, well, in our denomination, when we ordain a pastor and he has, receives a call, the words or the promise from the congregation is to free the minister from worldly care and employment. I have to say, it's perhaps, our lack of willingness to recognize this, that the office of minister has really fallen into disrepute. You know, the names of distinguished Americans in medicine, law, and theology are in the ceiling vault of the Library of Congress. You go in there, you know, you have, there's a number of names, but it's law, medicine, theology. We have no problem hiring a guy to be a pastor who doesn't have a degree. Would you hire a doctor who doesn't have a degree? Really? Doctors without degrees? Would you hire a lawyer without a degree? You know, I mean, at some level, we're all in the ministry, right? But if, I, but if I, and I, you know, I was a teacher and a coach, and I had to learn, like, first aid, 
You know, so, you know, I can do CPR. You know, if somebody comes up to me and says, I have a wart, I might help them remove the wart. Like, I think I can help you with the wart. I got an ingrown hair or a fingernail that's bugging me. I might help you. But if somebody's saying, you know, my heart, I don't reach, you know, for the steak knives. I'm like, you need to go see a doctor. And at some level, we can all minister. But when it gets right down to it, we need to have people in the pulpits who know what they're talking about. Now, what I have to say, you know, and I know I'm kind of talking about me here, but when I consider the calling and requirements of the post I hold, I have to admit I find it humbling and I find it overwhelming. And I think I should find it humbling and overwhelming because humility and dependence upon God should ever attend the hearts of those who hold the office. What I shouldn't do is lower the bar to accommodate my own mediocrity. I have to say, I don't want to go too far on this because I'm, I don't want to run out of time, but I remember when I first got called to this office 33 years ago, I felt it even then. Because the guy who held this position before me, I had a lot of respect for, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to fill this guy's shoes. But the elders and their wives were very persistent, and they're like, we really want you to do it. And I remember, I remember very clearly what I said when I finally gave in. I said, okay, but don't expect much. <laughs> and I really melted. I'm like, keep the bar nice and low for me. But you get in, and you, know, you realize, you know what? You need to crack the books. You need to be in prayer. You need to listen. You need to be a good student. And you need to be a good student for the rest of your life. Thirdly, we see the distinction between a tithe and an offering. And again, tithes and offerings, not just, it's not redundant. We see offerings in the Old Testament as distinct from the tithe. In our opening, Malachi 3.10, we saw it, but we see it here in Exodus 36.3, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. And by the way, there's one of the only places you're going to see the term free will in the Bible, it's not in, you'll never see it in regard to salvation. And it doesn't mean, by the way, here, even that God's stepping away and letting you function on your own. It's the idea that you are making a different type of decision than the tithe. I remember going to a church one time, and the guy praying for the tithe said, Lord, we want to offer your tithe and our offering. It's because God kind of views the tithe as his. Now, you might go, well, doesn't God own everything, right? Well, yeah, but there are certain things that are sacred. There are certain things that he views his in a different way than other things. And we recognize that. We're going to recognize that in a few minutes when we do the Lord's Supper. And I'd pray a prayer of what? Consecration, that we separate these elements for a sacred use. When you take the Lord's Supper, it's not, it's not like the drive through at Burger King. Right? These elements, there's something different about these elements. And so there are certain things that belong to God that belong to God in a more sacred way, so much so that he says when you don't do it, you're stealing. He doesn't say that about the free will offering. He says that about the tithe. Now, let me just go back to the distinction between the tithe and the offering. Now, when we were discussing the tithe, we read Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 9, right? In the midst of his explanation... He appeals to the law. 1 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle 
an ox while it treads out the grain. All right, so see, Paul's kind of going, look at it. I'm not bringing anything new here. It's, it's in the law. So he's, he's basically applying the law of the Old Testament into the New Testament. But notice this, how he says just the opposite when he's writing of the offering to be given. And this offering is not given to the pastor of their particular church, but it's for the support of the poorer Judean churches. It's a ministry outside of their own local church. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8, 8, I speak not by commandment. See, a minute ago he said, does not the law say? And now he's saying, I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. He was kind of comparing their behavior to the Macedonians who were apparently doing a better job than they were and so forth. And it's in that context that we see the very often quoted 2 Corinthians 9-7, let everyone give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, friends, the tithe is objective. It's 10%. Everybody can give the equal amount. Nobody's kind of got, you know, an advantage on anybody else But the offering is really kind of more subjective. You give what you've purposed in your heart. Now, let me just quickly address that, because that doesn't mean that you give impulsively or irresponsibly or when you're manipulated or when the Spirit moves you or something like that. What that word purpose means is that you've made a decision beforehand. It's not an an appeal for irresponsible giving. It is an appeal for thoughtful generosity, for you to go, I can do this. It makes sense in my budget. I can go above and beyond in this particular thing, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a building fund or whether it's a, the pregnancy center or whether it's, you know, um, Wycliffe you know, Bible translators or other places where you're going, there's another place where I think the ministry would be served beyond the tithe of my own church, and that's an offering, and that's the distinction I think is made. All this to say... There's a difference between the two. All right, well, finally. I don't know how convinced you are. I'm looking at trying to get a read. Everybody who ties, raise your... No, just kidding. <laughs> but assuming what I'm, the argument I'm making is biblical, and assuming you don't... Let's just say you're somebody who doesn't, And you're kind of going home going, I pretty much at the end of the month am done with my money, you know. I'm I'm hand to mouth here. Like, how do I get there? I think is a valid question. Because the idea of you not paying your rent this month or not feeding your kids, I don't think is a good option. Because you have a responsibility. I think you have a biblical responsibility to do those things as well. The idea that you're going to go to your landlord and go, I was going to pay the rent, but I tithed it. I'm not sure how that would play. But here's what I would advise. I I was driving down the street. I think I was actually on the freeway one day, and I was going somewhere, and I opened up a little console and realized I didn't have my wallet. And my wallet has my driver's license. And you know when you drive, it's the law that you have to have your driver's license. Right? 
You have, to, you have to have it with you. So I'm in the third lane on the 405 going about 60, and I just stopped and got out because <laughs> no, I didn't stop and get out. Like, I'm not where God wants me to be. Hit the brakes, get out. Sorry. No, what I had to do was develop a plan. Right? My plan was get off the road at some point, get my wallet. I need to get there from here without killing people. All right? And I think oftentimes, there are certain things that we just go, go and sin no more and you change immediately. Sometimes you need to work toward a place. And I would say in tithing, that's it. What you do is you really, you really should organize a godly, have a godly economic system in the back of your mind or in the forefront of your mind that you need to know what you're spending your money on. You could tell a lot about a person by looking at their checkbook. You know, what, what really matters to them is found when you go to that page. And I know for myself, I'm going, wow, we spent a lot of money on this, this, and this. You need to develop a biblical understanding of the way you should handle your finances. And in that plan, you should include a tithe. And then you need to work toward the tithing. And then as time goes on, you look back and you evaluate whether or not you're there. And whether or not you can get there rapidly or slowly, that's the direction that I think we need to responsibly take so that we eventually find ourselves to be tithers. Don't merely be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. And I would argue that one of the reasons that the country that we're in is in such a mess is because people don't tithe. Now, maybe that is the fruit of the mess, or maybe that is the cause of the mess. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Right? We're just not a church in America that's faithful to do what God has called us to do. And nothing, I think, is more evident in terms of that than the fact that we as a nation simply don't tithe. And I was kind of semi-kidding a little while ago you know, when I said, oh, 13% is what the government taxes us. It's more like 40 50%. We're all working till May, right? You work till May to pay the government. Or, or, or June. But here's the deal. The government is doing things that the church at one time did. There was a time when Christians took care of the poor. There was a time when Christians or the church were the ones who educated. There, were, there was a time when all, the, all these things that the government wants to do was something that Christians or the church did. Now the government does it. And how do you think they're doing? Yeah, Terribly. We have, you know, one of the other things I think that could be thrown into the offering category, we have a deacon board, they have aid to, to, aid to needy. All right, so somebody has a need, and somebody comes in these doors and they have a need. And they actually meet our deacons. Our deacons sit down with them and they discuss what the need is, what their abilities are, what their finances are. And they kind of look at the person and kind of evaluate at what level can we help you. Who do you think is doing a better job? Like 10 of our deacons sitting down with one individual person helping them organize their finances or some bureaucrat in D.C. Who will, never, who will never see that person. No, things need to be done responsibly and intimately. And God is kind of going, you can either pay me 13% and have things done well, or you can pay 40% and have things done poorly. And um, that's the end of my political aspect of this. Let me finish with this one thought, though. No amount of tithing can make you right with God. Let me just make that very clear. It It is not, Paul makes it very clear, 
We cannot make God our debtor. Right? That, it's just not that kind of transaction. We don't slam our money down on the counter. Like if I go to a store and I put my money on the counter, I expect whatever it is I'm buying because I paid for it, you give it to me. That doesn't work with God. There's only one person who put the money on the counter, and that is Jesus. He put, and the money was his own blood, his own body sacrificed for us. We can't make God our debtor. Matter of fact, Paul says we should view ourselves as debtors to everybody because of what has been done for us. We should approach tithing, just, and maybe it's clear, maybe it's not, but let me make it as clear as I can. We should approach tithing as with our other acts of obedience in light of the gospel, in light of what has already been done for us. Paul writes it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray. We pray for the church throughout the world. We pray for the church in America, and I pray for our own church here, that we would be faithful, Father, with that which you have entrusted to us, that we would be a tithing church, that we would be a generous church, that we would be a church even beyond the tithe, that would be a church that would give offerings to those even outside the boundaries of our own institution here. Think, Father, right now of the pregnancy center, that, that we would be a people who would reach out into the world in which we live and be generous not only with our finances but with our time and our effort as well. And we pray, Father, that in all of this, that your rich blessings, these ones, Father, that you've promised to attend the faithfulness of your people would, uh, would be abundant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.